so it's a, with a sense of trepidation that we turn to questions and answers as we play Stump the Pastor. There was a time when Jesus, was there a time when Jesus was ashamed or afraid of his power? This is a very human question because we tend to use power not very well. Oftentimes when power is exercised in our society, it is exercised in terms of, I have authority, you have none, so shut up and be quiet. Do what I'm telling you, because that's what you want to do, because I am the one who is in charge. According to the Gospels, nothing like that ever is shown in Jesus. Except there are modern-day Gnostics who say otherwise because they really want to turn Jesus into something other than what he was. There are people that say God grew in his understanding of things, that in the Old Testament he's kind of angry, judgmental, a horrible being, but then he gets down to Jesus, and Jesus turns out pretty well okay, pretty well okay. Not entirely okay, because after all, there are things that we don't like about Jesus. It is a, uh, an immature view of God and an immature view of Jesus. But those are people that are trying to turn God into human so that we can then say, we humans are the one who are in charge, and therefore we are God. But Jesus knew when to use power and when to not use power. You'll notice that at the wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus says to Mary, what is that to you and to me when she says, They've run out of wine. Jesus then chooses to use his power to make the celebration a more meaningful celebration. But it's his choice. And then you will notice that there are times when people come up to Jesus and say, will you heal me? And Jesus says, yes. But there are also times when the Bible says Jesus could do no great work there because of their unbelief. And that's specifically about the city of Nazareth. Jesus knew when to use power and he knew how to use it effectively. Unlike what we do today. We could learn a few lessons from Jesus. Number two. Are the Pauline epistles arranged according to length from longest to shortest? Yes. Okay, I'll give you more answers. <laughs> longest to shortest also reflects 
letters that are written to communities and to churches in terms of length, starting with Romans, which is the longest, having more words, and then the letters to the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, and then moving on from there. So we get down to Timothy 1, Timothy 2, Titus, followed by Philemon. Philemon, the book that most of us don't read too often because we are not too interested in what's going on in Philemon, though it's a book we could learn from. And then you'll notice that we get Hebrews. By the time the scriptures are codified, most everybody realized that Hebrews was not written by Paul. Didn't know who wrote it. It is a general epistle. So that's why we start with Romans, work our way down to Philemon. And then they put in Hebrews. The next question to me is a really interesting one because it reflects some really bad theology in the way that this is sometimes presented. Is it correct to say that all who call on Jesus are Christians and those who do not are Gentiles, including those who are Jewish by birth? No. No. And let me repeat again. No. There are churches, sects, that use the word Gentiles about people that are not believers. The Mormons will call non-Mormons Gentiles. Now, they don't do it publicly, but they certainly do it privately. There are Mormons and there are Gentiles. In the scriptures, there are two groups of people in the New Testament. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. Sometimes Paul uses Greeks and Gentiles synonymously. So he'll talk about Jews and Greeks. But you do not lose your Jewishness when you don't receive Jesus as Savior. Guess what? You're still Jewish. That's the way it is. You might be Jewish by your ancestry. You might be Jewish by your culture, depending on how you want to define it. You don't stop being Jewish because you didn't receive Jesus. You just stay being Jewish. If you're a Christian, you are a Christian. You could be a Jewish Christian. You can be an Irish Christian. You can be a Heinz 57 Christian, like me, where who knows what we all are besides French and English and a little German and an amalgam of everything else you could think of, probably. In this world, there are Christians and there are non-Christians. The non-Christians are not Gentiles. A Gentile is someone who is not Jewish by culture or by ancestry. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Gentile Christian. 
Most everybody in this room is a Gentile Christian. There is an exception, is we have someone in our midst who is of Jewish ancestry. He is a Jewish Christian. I wish we would just lose that stuff and be Christians. But I have very little to say about that matter. We are not black Christians or Hispanic Christians or Asian Christians or Korean Christians or Russian Christians or French Christians. We are all one in Jesus Christ. When we start adding little titles in front of it, well, I'm this and I'm that, I'm a special, I'm a you're and then you're not a special, and yeah, we go on and on and on. And we lose the sense that in Jesus Christ we are one. We are all the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ together. Individually, we are parts of the body of Christ. Together, we are the body of Christ, which is why it is so important for Christians to, to quote from Hebrews, to not forsake assembling of ourselves together. Because we need to be reminded that we are not the body of Christ as individuals. We are the body of Christ together. And we need one another. We need to know that we are not alone. We need to know that other people are going through similar things that we're going through, that other people are sometimes a little depressed and sometimes a little sad and sometimes really up and sometimes rejoicing. We need to know that those people are the people that we are gathered together in worship to be together, to be one in our Lord Jesus Christ. I would love to see us lose the titles. Celebrate your ancestry. God bless you, celebrate it. And I hope that your ancestry is a little more defined than mine, which is kind of spread out. Celebrate it, rejoice in it. But when you belong to the body of Christ, that's the ancestry that matters not our ethnicity, but who we are in Jesus Christ. What were the names of the twelve princes, or sons, born to Ishmael, the son of Abraham? Now notice I put princes in parentheses. The text that we're going to look at here in Genesis, the 25th chapter, will use the word princes, but princes is often used in Muslim circles to talk about the royalty of Ishmael. So turn with me to Genesis 25. And we're going to begin at the 12th verse. By the way, the name Ishmael means God hears. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael. 
in Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died. I always like the way that's put. He didn't just die, he breathed his last and died. Oftentimes when you breathe your last, the outcome is you're going to die. Just thought I should make that clear. And was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. There we go. Those are the names. I hope you remember them. Now, why is this important? Remember that God made a promise to Abraham. And he said, from you I will make a mighty nation. And then Abraham and Sarah went to work on solving God's problem for him. Never solved God's problem. It never turns out well. It doesn't in the case of Ishmael. It didn't in the case of Uzzah, who thought God's ark was going to fall over. He reached out and touched it, and he died there in the time of David. Never fix God's problem. God can fix his own problems. He's better equipped than the rest of us. Abraham and Sarah fixed God's problem. Except they made things worse. That's what we tend to do when we fix God's problem. It's better to let God fix our problems. He's also more equipped to do that than we are. Which brings us to the next question. Did Muhammad claim Ishmael, son of Abraham, as his ancestor, and do most Arabs still claim this today? Yes and no. As far as we know, Muhammad never said that he was descended from Ishmael. He did claim to be from a tribe that is a tribe associated with Ishmael. But that's about as close as we can get. Now, the Quran, on the other hand, kind of hints that Ishmael is a direct descendant of, I would say that Muhammad is a direct descendant of Ishmael. But it doesn't really come out and say it, but according to Islamic tradition, Muhammad is directly descended from Ishmael. Take it, leave it, I don't care. It really doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. The ancestry of the Arabic tribes can be traced to a couple of different places, to Esau, to Ishmael, and to Lot. You remember Lot? Well, Lot and his daughters did things that ought not to be done between father and daughter. And a couple of the tribes trace their heritage back to that unfortunate occurrence. And then there are the family that Esau fathered, and some of the tribes trace their 
lineage back to Esau, and some of the tribes will trace their lineage back to Ishmael. But let me wait, make one other thing clear in terms of ancestry. The Egyptians are not Arabs. The Iranians are not Arabs. They're just not. Now, the Iranians like to call themselves Arabs, and the Egyptians like to call themselves Arabs, but neither is true. The Egyptians are Egyptians. The Arabs are Arabs. The Palestinians are Palestinians. And the Iranians are Persians, if you remember the Persians from the scriptures. So the ancestry of many of the Arabic tribes can be traced to Esau, to Ishmael, and to Lot. There we go. The next question is an interesting one, and I wish I knew the derivation of the material that caused this question. What pagan features did Solomon's temple have? None, until later. But none when the temple was dedicated. When the temple was dedicated, it was designed like the tabernacle in the wilderness. It had the same courtyard structure. It had the holy place, the most holy place. It had the laver. It had the altars. It had all the stuff you associated with worship in a temporary in and around a temporary place. So when Solomon's temple was designed, it was a gorgeous building by all accounts. It was supposed to be one of the seven wonders of the world. An incredible place full of gold and bronze, and wonderful things going on there. But later, long after the death of Solomon, when Israel and especially Judah, fell into corruption, they began to put up things associated with false worship. Because they liked having a good excuse to worship other gods beside God. And then, of course, you'll remember that Solomon built temples for many of his wives and concubines and other people that he was deeply in lust with by the hundreds. And oftentimes when they would show up, it was because they were making an alliance with Solomon from their country to Solomon. And Solomon decided he would do something wonderful for them and he would build a little temple so they could worship. Interestingly enough, all those temples were below the level of the temple in Jerusalem. Because after all, Solomon could tolerate the worship of false gods if you were one of his concubines or whatever else you want to call them, wives, the people he visited once every three or four years. Well, that's about how many of them there were. If he visited one a night, it would have taken him about three and a half years to get to see all of them. Probably for them it was once too many times. But Solomon, when he built their temples, made sure that they were below the level of the temple of the God of the universe. 
you didn't mix up where you were going in terms of worship. You always went up to the temple. And in Jerusalem, you went up to the temple because God would dwell on the highest point overlooking the whole of the earth. So the pagan features in Solomon's temple were later additions. There was a time when they erected an Asherah pole in Solomon's temple. It's a very lewd symbol, but they did it anyway because they liked the idea of false worship. By the time we get to some of the good kings, like Joash and others, they actually cleaned out Solomon's temple and removed all of the pagans' idols that had been put in after the death of Solomon when the country really fell into false worship. And they would clean it out, and for a few years, true worship was restored. And then they'd put stuff back in when the next king came into view. We find that Hezekiah was the last of the great kings who actually worshipped the true God. And one of the first things that Hezekiah did was to throw out and to burn and to pulverize all of the stuff associated with idolatry that was located in the temple to the Lord. We've got a couple more questions. So John asked a question, I'm going to pick on him, about what happens when we die. I can tell you what the scriptures teach, but I have not experienced it in person, so I cannot tell you for sure. I can tell you that if you've come back from the dead and you have decided that this is the way things are, that there's a good chance what you're going to tell me is incorrect. Most of the stories of people who've come back from the dead have noticed that everybody's there. We're all there in heaven. All of, all of God's creation is there in heaven. One of the most profound ones, and, and she was on all kinds of Christian talk shows for a while, was a woman who was a physician and she said she was dead for a half an hour or 45 minutes or however long it was, and she went to heaven. Now, the great feature of her going to heaven was she didn't believe in God when she died. Isn't it curious that these people often who go to heaven don't believe in God, and they come back and say, everybody's there, isn't it great? So you can do... You can act, you can think, you can do whatever you want to do, and God's going to bring you into his heaven. It's just a lie that is spawned by the evil one. The little boy who went to heaven, claimed by his father and by the little boy, who saw that Jesus had a blue horsey. who crawled up on his grandpa's lap. Though his grandpa didn't have a body there, he crawled up into the lap of God the Father. Now that's a great curiosity because Jesus told us that the Father is spirit. And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. 
the little boy said in heaven everybody wore a sword and i asked jesus where my sword is and jesus said it's too dangerous for you to have a sword dangerous in heaven if we actually apply the scriptures to the stories of people who have come back from heaven i can tell you that those stories come up lacking as we talked about a few weeks ago that paul went to heaven in vision or bodily we just don't know because paul said i don't know which way it was and when he got back what did paul say let me tell you about all that i have seen he said i can't tell you anything he is forbidden to tell and who would i believe paul or all these other folks if Paul had told me something, I'd believe it about heaven. So here's what we know. When we die, we go into the presence of the Lord. We leave behind something that's very vital to our functioning here. A body. Generally, when we die, it means we've breathed our last, like Ishmael, if you recall, and then we die. The part of us, our soul, spirit, however you want to call it, if we are believers, that part of us goes to be with the Lord. Because there's nothing in life or in death that can separate us from God's love and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul teaches that absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. But you notice what he says is absent from the body. He doesn't say, and you drag your body up with you. I'm going to tell you, you leave something behind when you go to the presence of the Lord. You leave your body behind. So if in one of these books somebody talks about having a body there in the presence of the Lord, you can say, really? Where'd that come from? Because somebody had to do something with your body. Bad things begin to happen to the body when the breathing stops. You've got to figure out what to do with it. Some people burn it, some people bury it, but you've got to do something with it. In the presence of the Lord, you don't need it yet. What is heaven like? We don't know. We just know it's where God is. And where God is is going to be an incredible experience. That's what we know. We go to the presence of the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, we find comfort and peace. That's about all the scriptures tell us. Until that day when the Lord returns, and it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, He brings with Him those who have died in Jesus. So it means they got to be there in order for him to bring them with him. And then the bodies are raised and body and soul are put back together. And then we will dwell on this earth where God will dwell in the midst of his people and we will be with Jesus and we will be with one another. It doesn't answer all our questions. But nothing in scripture answers all of our questions because we can always generate a few more i know i do it all the time and then i have to say i'll have to believe what the scriptures 
tell me? Because they don't give me any other answers, and I'll have to wait and see if it's worthwhile asking when I'm actually in the presence of the Lord, or will I forget all about it and just join in the rejoicing, which I tend to think is probably what's going to happen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and that your word is truth. May we trust this word, this word revealed, because it tells us the way to you is through Jesus, your Son, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself and your Son, and that nothing will ever separate us from you again. We praise you for that good news in Jesus' name. Amen. The scriptures tell us that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this as often as you eat it, remembering me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. Again he gave thanks. He gave the cup to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it remembering me. Gracious God, thank you for life in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can see through death into life because Jesus lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. We rejoice that our lives are hidden in him and that you dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. And so as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, May we know the presence of our Lord Jesus who came to give us life. We praise you in his name. Amen.